Mind Blown, Part 8. I talked to Price. He denied everything. He told me I was suffering from a very complex paranoid delusion. He said my mind had made it all up. That my subconscious had stitched together a very convincing alternate reality with no basis in this one. That I was suffering from a troubling break from reality and that as a result, he's going to cease further experimentation on me. I'd spend the rest of my time here under monitoring care and rehabilitation. Why was he doing this? Why was he lying? We were on the same side. Or if not the same side, then certainly he worked for people who had my best interest at heart. It's not like they weren't going to find out. I asked him if none of what I was saying was true. How was Chris Taylor dead? How had he got in a car accident? More importantly, how could I possibly know about any of that? He said he'd never heard of Chris Taylor. He said he never heard of Pastor Dan or Valiant or even the 3CA. It was infuriating sitting there while he inexplicably, and ill-advisably, I'll add, tried to gaslight me. Who did he think I was? I laid out all the details about what I knew, what I'd been through, about what it was like being stuck inside that damn computer. But he didn't budge. He just kept calling me Tim and telling me that they would help me get better. Then two security guards brusquely escorted me back to Tim's quarters. It frustrated the hell out of me, but I knew better than to start screaming and ranting about it. Might as well claim I'm Napoleon. Thing is, I know that Tim fellow is trying to get out of here, so it's likely Price reckons I'm him, but faking it. I don't know if Tim was smart enough to pull something like that off, frankly. But I understand Price needs to play it safe. Price can't react in the moment. He needs to assess just what's going on, and that's going to take some time. Gotta admit, I respect him for not instantly believing me. But I also don't want to mess around in this place for very long. I gave him Pastor Dan's contact info, which I know he was only pretending not to have already, and I told him to contact him. He didn't say nothing one way or the other on the subject, but I have a good feeling he'll call. He'll call and Dan will sort this all out. It's just a matter of time. Just gotta be patient. Frankly, after being stuck in the eternal void in that damn machine for who knows how long, I can stand to sit tight for a few days while things sort themselves out. And if they don't, well, I'm not above escalating things. This place is nuts. There are four other people here who Price and his goons experiment on. They all think I'm Tim, and I decided the easiest thing to do would play along. None of them suspect anything, and whenever I seem confused or unaware about stuff Tim should know, they just talk it up to Tim's inability to keep stuff straight. Honestly, if someone throws a question at me I can't answer, I just kind of throw my hands up and point at my head like there's nothing in it. They accept that. That's Tim's life. I started playing hoops with a big dude called Roger. He's good, and I enjoyed the exercise. Needless to say, it's been a while since I've done anything physical. I played a lot of hoops in church league, and I guess I was a lot better than Tim because Roger kept asking where I got those moves. He kept asking me if Price had downloaded a how-to-not-suck-at-basketball protocol in my head. I laughed. I liked Roger. For a second, I was worried that by playing so much better than Tim, he might suspect something weird was going on. I considered sandbagging to keep the ruse up, but my competitive nature got the best of me, and I beat him 22-18. He handed me a beer and I don't drink, but Tim does, and I could sense that his body wanted that beer, and for whatever reason, I couldn't stop him from taking it and drinking it. And then another. And a third. I guess I got drunk. He hit me hard. I didn't care for it, to be honest. Roger and his band with that skinny punk called Simon and the standoffish young woman named Nina started playing some tunes. I hung out in the common area and tried to keep from passing out on the sofa. The fourth guinea pig who hadn't spoken to me since I'd gotten here a couple days earlier was eyeballing me from across the room. She looked suspicious. I think her name was Kira, but like I said, we hadn't actually spoken to each other. I figured it was good a time as any to break the ice, so I went over and said hello and asked how she was doing. 
He asked me who I was. I said I was Tim. She said, no, I wasn't. She said I could fool the others, but she could see it all over my face, in my voice, in my mannerisms. I told her she was just imagining things, but she flatly told me she didn't imagine. She saw too much to imagine. I asked her who she thought I was, and she said she didn't know, but she could tell that I didn't like her. I mean, I didn't, that's for sure. But how could she know? I'd been cordial to the point of obsequiousness. Partially from the effect the alcohol was having on me, and partially just because I was in go-along-to-get-along mode. I figured being nice would be my best cover to keep people from asking too many questions. Yeah, I wanted Price to know who I was. I wasn't so sure about the rest of these weirdos. I tried to reassure this Kira person that I didn't dislike her, but she just gave me a side eye that could kill. I don't like Kira thinking I'm someone else. She means so much to me. And I know she told me not to fall in love with her, but I did, and I can't deny it. I have so much I need to tell her about what I've learned about what we saw in the East Wing, about what happened when I got out in the car crash. I need to ask her about how she contacted Ruth and what that was all about and how it worked, but I can't seem to make my mouth form the words. It's like everything I want to say and ask her is locked up in a box in a forgotten room in my mind and I can't find it anymore. How did I get outside? I don't know how long I have before he's in control again, so I'm going to try to get as much of this on tape as possible for future reference. I was finally able to talk to Kira, as me. She can sense when Chris is pretending to be me and when I'm just, you know, me. I'm not me very often. A couple times a day without warning, I'll be back in control. I don't know how or why it happens. It's just like I'll come to while I'm walking down the hall or using the bathroom or eating. It's just, it's, it's, it's not optimal. Sometimes I'm me for a couple hours and sometimes it's only about 20 minutes. I don't know what triggers the change. It happens at completely unpredictable intervals, so I think it's totally random. I wish I thought it was happening more often or for longer stretches, any sign that I was winning this thing, but right now it's just this relentless back and forth between me and Chris. But the most important thing is Kira finally explained to me how she and Ruth planned my escape. So when she was in the ICU, they had her jacked into the system for diagnostics, and she was able to jaunt the way I did, the whole cosmic water slide thing. On her first couple of tries, she found herself in random subjects that she sort of recognized from the Lost Souls file, but nothing substantial happened. She would wake up in a strange surrounding and lose the connection almost instantly and be right back in the Institute. On her fourth try, she woke up as Chris. Luke and Judith were there. She knew enough about them and their situation from what I had told her to fake her way through a conversation as Chris pretty well. She spoke to Luke and Judith, and they didn't suspect anything although she said it was clear Judith was very stressed out about her son being in and out of his comatose state all the time. Kira even spoke with Pastor Dan, but she could tell he suspected something was up, so she kept the conversation brief and feigned excessive fatigue to keep the questions from being too probing. Her superhuman senses didn't transfer over to Chris, so it's not like she could tell by looking at the microscopic details of his face that he was suspicious. It was just that obvious. But at one point, Kira got her, well, his, hands on Chris's phone and called Ruth. Over the course of several lengthy conversations, she convinced her that five people were trapped in an institute and needed help escaping. Kira begged her to go to the authorities, but Ruth refused to get involved in that fashion. She wasn't going to call anyone or be on the record in any way, shape, or form. It was all too crazy, and she didn't trust or even like Chris enough to risk looking like an unhinged conspiracy theorist on his behalf. Some representatives of the church had already been trying to make her life miserable for leaving. It was limited to low-grade annoyance, crank calls, anonymous emails, and occasional taunting sign in her yard but she didn't want to give them any ammunition or reason to escalate. 
But something about the way Kira talked to Ruth convinced her to keep taking the calls, and eventually they worked out a plan which set up conditions that allowed me to get in Luke's car and get away from there. Kira said it took a lot of convincing, but if anyone can convince a person to do something that's against their nature, it's Kira. I asked her if she ever told Ruth who she was, that she was a woman like her, but Kira said it wasn't relevant, so she didn't. Kira didn't know if I had told Ruth who I was, and she was afraid that if it sounded like random people were popping in and out of her ex-boyfriend, it might not go over so well. Ultimately, Ruth very grudgingly agreed to get Luke out of the house without his car keys. She asked him to go on a walk so they could talk about stuff. Such a simple, elegant solution. But she only agreed to do it on the condition that no matter what happened after that, no one involved in this scheme would ever contact her again. Hence the tone of the call I got when I spoke to her. Anyway, you know the rest. They set up a brilliant plan and executed it perfectly, and I blew it by looking at my phone while I was driving. Kira took the news fairly well, meaning she didn't punch me in the face, which, honestly, I deserved. She was glad I had found my way back here, although neither of us fully understood how I was able to jaunt without being connected to the network. We now had enough facts to hypothesize that at some point Price had downloaded Chris's identity into me from the computer tower in the East Wing. The process wasn't successful for whatever reason, but Chris was still in me. The trauma of the car crash, uh, I, I don't know, awoke him? Activated him? I don't know what to call it because it's not a thing that happens. I mean, before this, I guess. Whatever we want to call it, the fact is, he's in control. Kira told me that other than her, no one realized that I wasn't me, and she hadn't told anyone. Roger, Simon, and Nina just assumed I was being my usual aloof self. Kira hadn't told any of them about the East Wing, and none of them were even the slightest bit curious about where Price and the rest of them had gone or why. It was like they took this whole twisted experiment at face value and didn't question what or who was behind it. They just wanted to do the thing and collect the paycheck at the end. Kind of envied that, to be honest. I'd love to go through life not thinking there's ulterior motives and hidden intentions behind literally everything. Honestly, being paranoid is exhausting. I told Kira about Senator Vickers, and she agreed that her next move was to contact him. Whichever one of us jaunted out next would make that their highest priority. I didn't know if or when I was ever going in again, and Kira only got hooked up when she was in intensive care, which, you know, we didn't want to wish for her to get sent to. I have to say, I'm not exactly in a hurry to get out of here right now. Not while... I mean, I don't want to live the rest of my life like this. My best shot at normalcy is here. I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm afraid to go out in the real world like this. I'm not Chris right now. I don't know how long it's been since the last time I recorded. I don't know how long I've been here or how long I've left. Chris hasn't been keeping my notebook up to date, go figure. I don't think it's been too long though. Today I woke up as me. I don't mean I came to as me while Chris was shaving or watching Christian Voice like I had a bunch of times before. I literally woke up as me in a bed after a night's sleep for the first time since the car crash. Fully expected to go right back into whatever void I was suspended in when Chris was in control at any moment, but I didn't. I had breakfast, I worked out in the gym a little, I hung out with Simon for a while and listened to him read some of the screenplay he was writing. It's terrible, but I do want to be supportive. Around dinner time, Dr. Janice Yen came by. 
I should add as an aside here to anyone who comes across this tape or whatever that we always referred to her by her full name as sort of an inside joke about how formal and official she always was with us. The other eggheads had moments where they let their guard down and talked to us like normal human beings, but Dr. Janice Yen never once stopped being, well, Dr. Janice Yen. She appeared to have no sense of humor or humanity. Not that she was a bad person, she was just sort of an emotional blank. I assumed it was a personality trait, such that I thought about it at all. She summoned me to her office, which I'd never been in. Like the other Egghead's offices, it was devoid of any personal effects or connections to the outside world or any indication of a life outside of this place. And yet somehow hers seemed starker and more impersonal than the others I'd been in. Her eyes were red and watery, her face pale and blotchy in the unforgiving fluorescent light. Her nose was pink from constantly blowing it into tissues. Without wasting any time with pleasantries, she asked me if I ever wondered where all the scientists had gone for so long when they disappeared a month ago. Of course I wondered, I told her. I just assumed I'd never know. Her body was practically vibrating, and her voice was quivering with raw nerve energy as she told me what had happened. She said she'd start at the beginning, which I knew meant she'd probably tell me things I already knew, but I wasn't going to stop her. She started by telling me that the building we were in was actually much larger than I realized. There are three other wings to this building where research experiments used to take place, she said. I nodded, pretending to be amazed by what she thought she was teaching me. Three of them are shut down. In one of them, the east wing, there's a computer tower. And on that computer tower are stored human consciousnesses. I knew all this, of course, but I figured I should see where she was going with it before I said anything. So I reacted stunned and amazed. I figured she was about to give me a lengthy explanation, so I just folded my arms and leaned back in my chair to see how it lined up with what I already knew. She began with the history of the technology that she had helped develop that went into the extraction of consciousnesses, which she referred to as ipsaity. I had to stop her there as I'd never heard the word ipsaity before. She told me it meant selfhood, individual identity, the part of a person that makes them who they are, their memories, thoughts, ideas, dreams, personality, all of it. She admitted it wasn't the most precise term in the world, but she found it poetic, and it was easier to say than consciousness and more broad than identity. And, since she was the lead programmer of the project, she got to make it the industry standard term. She told me that she and her team, none of whom worked here anymore, had successfully extracted the Ipsaity from 13 human host subjects around the world and stored them on a gigantic supercomputer. That's where you come in, she said, which I was not expecting. And then she told me the part I didn't know. When I was hit by Chris's car, Pastor Dan had removed my body from the accident scene to protect Chris from criminal investigation. Dan and Price brought both Chris and myself to the Institute, and Janice was instructed to upload both of our Ipsadies to the computer. She complied. Within hours of arriving at the Institute, we both had ports installed and our, con- er, our Ipsadies were uploaded to the computer tower. They waited a couple days, hoping that Chris would recover on his own, but he was going downhill fast. Dan was desperate to keep his dear friend alive, and Price saw an opportunity to conduct an experiment he'd been interested in for a long time. They agreed to download Chris into me, to let him take over my corporeal form. The procedure did not go according to plan. My body rejected Chris's identity almost instantly. Janice said it was like trying to load incompatible software. According to their instruments, the data transfer into my brain had been a success, but Chris was unable to assume administrative privileges of my body. Instead, I woke up. All this time, Price had told me that the accident had caused my amnesia but Janice explained it was just as likely a side effect of her experimental procedure. Science, huh? So it turns out I was right. There was no meeting in the hospital. There was no discussion, no contract, no agreement. They'd implanted all those memories, just as I had suspected. Turns out they were quite good at implanting memories. Janice described it as no more or less difficult than a parlor trick. 
I asked her what other memories they might have gifted me with, and she swore that other than manipulating the details of my onboarding, they hadn't. Wow, thanks, guys. She explained that before the accident, I'd been Walter Tenbush. She didn't know much about me beyond that because she didn't like to become attached to her subjects. I mean, Janice, come on. She did tell me that she hoped now that I knew my name, I could find my way back to my old life, so I have that going for me, which is nice. Once Price's creepy attempt to turn me into Chris had failed, they pulled me into their experiment with Roger and Kira and the other GPs, all of whom were actual volunteers. There was no way they could just let me go at that point. They had to keep me close while they figured out what to do next, and unfortunately, it was true that no one was looking for me. For Walter. So to make up for the blank space where my identity should have been, Janice said my subconscious invented the Tim persona, such that I have a persona. I interrupted to tell her about the seven memories, and she reaffirmed that those were residual recollections of Chris's that had somehow stuck. But Walter's memories, my memories, my thoughts, my ideas, my dreams, my ipsaity, all of that was gone. Likely for good. What remained was still in that computer tower. Well, can you put it back in me? I asked. Absolutely not, she said. Why not, I demanded. Because the files, the data, is corrupted. Yours, all of them, beyond corrupted, she said. Turns out the human brain stores and retrieves data in a similar fashion to a computer, so extractions are the relatively easy part. Storage, however, was a literal nightmare. Almost immediately after the files, she called them files, but they were entire lives, were stored, she noticed that their source codes had started to become increasingly chaotic and started to rewrite themselves in feedback cycles. In other words, the data wasn't idle. It perpetually reconstructed itself. Shortly after upload, each elegantly ordered obscenity became an infinitely recursive chaos. Even when the machine was turned off, the data was actively collapsing in on itself again and again and again at the speed of a superprocessor, millions of times a minute. Such was the nature of this type of data. It was ostensibly sentient. It couldn't sit idle, and it couldn't make sense of it its surroundings no matter how hard it tried. It was kept alive, if you could call it that, by a machine that also held it captive. I have no mouth and I must scream. But Janice couldn't just leave those lost souls stuck in that hard drive, nor could she simply delete them, which would be tantamount to murder. Plus, she wasn't 100% sure routine operation like deletion would actually work. So she began a frantic mission to fix them. She spent every waking moment of her life trying to write code that would patch whatever glitch was causing the files to turn on themselves. There had to be a way to make this right and undo the damage that she'd helped inflict. She was a computer genius and believed that it was always a solution just around the corner if she worked hard enough. She'd never be able to forgive herself if she failed and those souls continued to exist in their torturous, liminal state. But it was no use. After working herself nearly to death, Janice said there was nothing more she could do. She tried. She tried so hard and got nowhere. This wasn't a program with some bugs in it or a piece of software with a glitch. This was a self-perpetuating crisis, what programmers called a fatal error. Price killed the project a little over two years ago. Valiant wanted to both sweep it under the rug and preserve the data, which they considered their intellectual property. So the computer tower was preserved in the belief, however misguided, that Janice's best efforts notwithstanding, the files could be fixed at some later date. The East Wing was sealed off and deserted. Only a handful of the staff were aware of what had happened, and they were reassigned to other Valiant facilities around the world. The rest of the Institute was repurposed to conduct the more commercial and practical interface experiments I and the others were now taking part in. Janice protested. She insisted something had to be done to eradicate the data completely. She tried to convince them that these weren't merely ones and zeros. This was ostensibly life. This was consciousness. This was awareness. This was a human mind. 
captured, still thinking, still dreaming, still reasoning, but unable to figure out what had happened to it. Price and Valiant didn't see it that way. They saw them as nothing more than computer program files that replicated humanity. This was all staggering information, but I had to ask her what this had to do with why she and the others had left the Institute for so long. She paused dramatically, and then she said gravely, One of the consciousnesses escaped. Yeah, I didn't see that coming. How? I asked. Somehow the computer tower in the east wing of the building where they were being stored was powered up just long enough for one of the enormous files to upload itself to the Valiant Network, she said. Obviously at this point I didn't tell Janice that Kira and I were the ones who had turned the computer on. I wanted to see where this story was going before I started taking the blame for anything. She went on, One of the 15 digitized Ipsaides, identities, consciousnesses, lives, whatever you want to call it, one of the files in the Lost Souls folder had willed itself free from the confines of that massive hard drive and got loose inside the Valiant Global Network, looking for a way out. It spent days coursing through the vast interconnected global web of Valiant machines and servers and nodes looking for an exit. She said they tracked its digital footprint to behave like a trapped animal, frantic, unpredictable, desperate. Eventually the data found its way back to its host, Janice said, the body of Yong Il Lee, septuagenarian kept on life support in a Valiant facility in Seoul, South Korea. She went on, Several years ago, Mr. Lee had suffered a traumatic brain injury. A tragic but fairly ordinary slip-and-fall accident was being kept alive much the same way Chris and Olivia and the others were. According to Janice, Mr. Lee didn't have any family or friends to speak of, which, of course, is very much Valiant's M.O. But he was the first of the 15 uploads, and somehow his digitized consciousness had found its way back to him and reinstalled itself. And then things got bad. Really, really bad. Mr. Lee woke up and immediately started shrieking and thrashing about in his bed. Little of what he said as he screamed at the top of his lungs made any sense, but some of the words his caregivers were able to pick out of the garbled rantings were trapped, nothing, hell, and eternity. It's eternity in there, I muttered. Janice broke down and started to cry again. She and Price and Abdullah and Cho and Olufsen had all been called to Seoul to examine and hopefully help Mr. Lee, but it was too late for help. What they found wasn't a man in need of medical or therapeutic treatment. They were face-to-face with an entirely ruined mind. A madman. He had been heavily sedated by his caregivers to allow Price and the rest of them time to travel halfway around the world. But the moment they arrived and his sedatives were off, they saw the true horror their experiment had unleashed. Janice could only stand to be in his presence for 30 seconds before she had to leave the room, sobbing uncontrollably. She said that after half an hour of his haunted, desperate wails and inhuman contortions, his heart mercifully gave out and he died. Janice couldn't bring herself to look at him again but Cho told her that his twisted, horrified face would haunt his nightmares for the rest of his life. I wanted to puke. Janice had been talking a mile a minute, like she was giving a confession she'd been desperate to give for years, like she was unloading a gigantic weight from her shoulders, like she was seeking forgiveness. But now she whispered, choosing her words carefully. She swore to me that the entire initiative had started off, as they always do, with the best intentions. The manifestation of a century of speculative science and hope. The goal as I knew, the true melding of mind and machine. Eternal life. It was supposed to serve a greater good. It was supposed to offer humankind a chance at existence beyond our own brief lifespans. It was supposed to usher in an age of enlightenment. It was supposed to work. But after seeing Mr. Lee's fate, a fate she had helped seal, she came to the conclusion that she could no longer be a productive member of the Valiant team. Her mind was too distracted by the images of madness and desperation to focus on the task at hand. So she was giving up. She was turning tail and running. She wasn't proud. She was sorry. She was so, so sorry. 
She wept as she begged for my forgiveness. You're still in there, Walter. You and 13 others, you're still in there, she wailed. So what do I have to do, I asked. You have to destroy the tower, she told me. You can't just unplug it or beat it to bits with a hammer or cut it up with a chainsaw. Every nanoscopic switch on every microscopic chip on every circuit board has to be completely annihilated. It's the only way to make sure the files are fully deleted. If even a tiny fraction of a file is still intact, there's a chance it'll still be active. The whole thing has to be reduced to ash. That's murder, I said. It's the right thing to do, she said. Then why don't you do it, I asked. She told me that because she had attended resignation, she was being escorted off the premises in one hour and 17 minutes. There was no time and no way for her to breach the east wing and destroy the tower. And Price would never allow it. Well, when you leave, why don't you just tell the authorities, I said. Shut the place down, expose Price and Valiant, set us all free. You don't understand how powerful Valiant is, do you, she said. There's no authorities to go to. What about Senator Vickers, I said. And she laughed. Valiant invented Vickers. He's on their payroll. He's a distraction. He's the guy who makes reality sound so absurd that no one wants to be associated with believing it. Valiant is evil, she whispered, as if I hadn't figured that out by now. And they would ruin her life if she ran a follow of them. She hoped that by leaving quietly and disappearing and never speaking of the Institute or her work would keep them off her back. That was her only chance of living anything resembling a normal life. With that, she apologized again and walked out of her office. Later, I was in my quarters and I saw a car drive down the driveway and disappear into the trees. I assumed that was her. I didn't sleep that night, needless to say. This morning, Price came into my room. He called me Chris. He said that he'd vetted my story with Dan and apologized for doubting me before. I don't know exactly what he was talking about, but Price assured me that Dan was coming to the Institute to collect me and take me home. He'd be here in 48 hours and then I'd be free. I'll be free. I'll be out of this madhouse and back to my work. Look, I ain't crazy about this body swap business. Don't feel natural. But Timbo ain't an unattractive fella. Seems to be in pretty good health. Important thing is I can get back to my calling. My mission. And his payback for everything he's put me through. For pretending to be me. For killing me. For making my mom mourn my death. Well, I think I'll just leave that computer tower as it is. Let him literally rot in hell.